Welcome to Safe and Effective, the medical human factors podcast and the latest cast in the human factors cast family. For the first show, I've brought on a familiar face. Welcome to the show, Nick Rome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here with the kickoff of Safe and Effective. So exciting. All right. Bringing the energy there. All right. Nick is joining us today to lend us a helping hand and kick off our show. And of course, to ensure that we bring the same level of production quality and care to the table that the Human Factors Cast Network is known for. So Nick will be co-producing, right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to come on the show because we're really just aiming to have high standards across all of our podcasts. We want to make sure that the same level of care, same level of detail, same level of that continuous improvement. If you've been following Human Factors Cast for a while, you know that we're dedicated to making sure that the show is always improving and that we're always investing in communication of human factors concepts. So I'm really excited to be here to talk about this. And from the main show, I call it the main show because that's where I'm at, but this is going to be its own main show. So that's fun. The the main <laughs> Human Factors Cast, we talk about weekly topics a different topic every week where it's more of a discussion panel. Heidi, I'm really interested to have the conversation with you. What makes Safe and Effective different? So Safe and Effective is going to be purely focused on medical human factors, medical, healthcare, anything and everything that has to do with that space. That can be medical device development, that can be medical influence, that can be hospitals, that can be health organizations, that can be healthcare. It can be patient care. It can be anything and everything in the medical human factor space. And we will be focusing on that space specifically. And that's great because it's not like we have to stay away from medical human factors on Human Factors Cast, but this is just a dedicated space for human factors professionals in medical human factors. And that's really exciting to me. This is something that we've been talking about for a long time. This has been in development for a long time. I'm really excited to see what this actually becomes. So what is the show? <laughs> I have to go a little back for that. A few years back, I started to realize that every year at our annual conferences, whether it was the Healthcare Symposium or the annual HFES, or for a matter of fact, other conferences in the medical space where Human Factors comes up, Human Factors Engineering, Research, Design, anything and everything, right? We would have such great conversations and exchanges, but then they would be paused until the next conference, right? As there was no existing forum or platform where we could continue the conversation. With a lot of downfall, because then conversations wouldn't continue, they would stall, or worst case scenario, which happened a lot, is they would just be repeated at the next conference. And we would never really get anywhere. And then often we all struggle with the same challenges, especially in the medical device development world. But as we all suffer from the confidentiality burden and often organizational culture restrictions in individual companies, it almost seemed as if there was no open exchange happening. And that kind of bothered me. It bothered me because I knew my peers were struggling with the same thing and everybody was trying to figure it out on their own in silos. Therefore, I really wanted to create something, a safe space where we could continue our conversations hash out whatever ongoing hot topics we had and find a forum on which we can ask each other for advice and insight. Maybe not even so often to problems. Also share the latest discoveries and learnings. It's a space where we can just 
talk openly. Of course, I'd like to invite experts, leaders, known and up and coming, from all medical spaces in the human factors world, including regulatory and clinical experts. And we often leave those out, but they do affect us, right? And to facilitate an open exchange in all things medical and healthcare human factors, you know, have a collaborative place for professionals to come together to discuss relevant topics in the industry without having this connotation that it has to be XYZ, it has to be a webinar, it has to be this, it has to be that, you know, it can just be an open conversation. I really wanted to focus on that because I can tell you right now what it is not. It is not a giant advertisement for XYZ consulting agency. It is not a giant billboard for XYZ medical device company, manufacturer, pharmaceutical company, whatever. It is not going to be one of those driven things that just produces content for the sake of producing content. It is supposed to be a safe space where we openly get to actually talk about the topics that bother us, that excite us, and share without that connotation in the back. So that's really what I wanted to create, and I hope we're going to be successful with that. I, for one, am really excited about this, and I am so... Genuinely, Heidi, I am really happy to pass off like the host reins onto somebody else to make this your own. With that, bye. All right. Thanks, Nick, for coming on today. Always lovely to talk to you. On today's show, we will have our first regulatory roundup with my dear friend and peer and a seasoned expert in the human factors medical device development world, Gianna Creaser. And then later on, we will hear from our field correspondent, Elise, as she sat down with some familiar voices at this year's HFES International Healthcare Symposium in Orlando, Florida. All right. Welcome to the Regulatory Roundup, first segment ever on Safe and Effective. And today, Janet is joining me, my dear friend and peer, Janet has a PhD in human factors and ergonomics. She has been working in the medical device industry for eight years and has 23 years of experience in human factors, including many years in transportation safety and some time in aerospace. Janet's passion is designing systems to minimize risk and make life easier. Oh, isn't that lovely? Hi, Janet. Hello. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's so nice to do this with a friend on the first episode, and especially with somebody who I share so many passions with when it comes to regulatory guidance, right? Yes, definitely. So today we picked something interesting for our regulatory roundup, and that is the new draft guidance on the content of Human Factors Information and Medical Device Marketing Submissions, which is a draft guidance issued from the FDA on December 9th, 2022. It's not a final, okay? So what we're saying is all in relation to a draft guidance. So first and foremost, this document is supplemental to the CDRH's 2016 guidance. This guidance is not a supplement for how to conduct human factors, okay? All right, Janet, you want to get into it with me? Yeah, I do want to get into this. It was interesting to see this guidance come out. One thing that we really do want to focus on today is that this is draft guidance. Again, not finalized. It is ready to be commented on. If you have thoughts and feelings and perspectives on this guidance, I highly recommend you go and make your comments. 
And one of the things we want to be clear is that per its intention, and I'm going to make a direct quote from section two of this draft, is to help submitters and FDA staff determine what human factors evaluation information should be included in marketing submission for medical devices. So this applies to 510K, de novo applications and pre-market approvals and supplements, as well as humanitarian device exemption applications. But what it is not doing is telling you how to do your human factors process. It is really talking about the content of your marketing submission based on the deliverables you've already produced for your process based on that 2016 guidance. That's a good point. It is not on how to do human factors. It is what to submit in your submission. All right, let's get to the basics here. In its very simplistic form, the guidance consists of 23 pages, not including the title page. Given this is not intended to be a document on how to conduct a process, it is half the size of the original guidance, which contains 46 pages total and 10 sections. So, Janet, do you want to give us a little intro? Yeah, the first section in this guidance is actually their introduction to why they are creating this guidance in the first place and why they think it's needed based on what's coming out of industry. So I think any of us who have been in human factors in the medical space for a long time know that people are often a little bit confused about what it means to scope a human factors process. So basically in the introduction, this section introduces the intent of the guidance document and reviews that similar to how the human factors process should be scoped, as I already mentioned, per the original 2016 guidance, the submission materials can also be scoped based on what level of risk and work was required for the product in the first place. It also gives an overview of that human factors is a risk-based process. And yes, that is very true. And I think it serves as a reminder. Yeah, it serves as a reminder. It really is a risk-based process, but we can do so much with it. And it will replace what a previous draft guidance, which was known as the list of highest priority devices, which was a list of medical devices that had a high enough level of risk or had enough issues that the FDA required that you had to submit your full human factors summary report and ensure that you had a robust design history file in place for that product. And what it's going to do is actually add more than that prior draft guidance had, which is really tell you how to handle your lower risk devices or maybe like where you had to make some minor changes to your user interface, but you're not overhauling your entire product or creating a new one. It's more detailed information on what you're submitting. It's not so much more detail on how you're doing your activities or how your document is supposed to be compiled or how a program is supposed to be structured. It's just basically saying, look, we understand in our original guidance, there's section nine, appendix eight, it gives an outline of the HFE report. And that's what we expect to see in the report. And a robust human factors engineering program will cover all those sections. What this guidance is more is saying, we understand, we've listened to you and we understand that there are various different pathways, various different formats you're submitting in, various different devices and in situations where it's not always just a new device. It's not always just this. It's not always just that. So it's giving like a plug and play. If this is the case, then you submit this material. Now, what we should be very clear on is that When we say robust human factors engineering process, you should always have a robust human factors engineering process. However, 
you might not need to submit every single section in your report, depending on what type of program you did. It doesn't, again, mean that you're not doing certain things in human factors engineering. It just means they're not applicable to the device you're developing. So I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in the guidance that it gives a little bit of a misconception of here's an example. In this example, you should do X, Y, Z. Even though it doesn't say do, it just implies it with the examples, which are great examples. But again, reading this, you could get that kind of misconception that this is just reducing your program to these items when it really isn't reducing your program. It's just saying, we want to see the results of that in these sections and XYZ section might not be applicable to you because of ABC. And I right. think that's what's really critical on that part as well. The other thing that I wanted to mention that leads us into section five, which I would love for you to talk a little bit more about, is that this is written for human factors professionals. This is not a, no pun intended, user manual for how to do human factors. And I think that alone takes a lot of questioning out of the guidance because as a human factors professional who's experienced in this, who knows why they're saying certain things, why the FDA is putting it in certain terminology, that alone gives you kind of the hint, oh, okay, I got it. That means if I don't have any new critical tasks and I have XYZ, then they don't need me to fill out at length section XYZ in the HFE report, right? Or they just want a high-level summary of XYZ because we did not find any new critical tasks and it doesn't have any changes to the user interface. But that doesn't mean that you omit certain tasks and activities that led you to that conclusion. So Janet, with that being said, yeah. do you want to give us a little bit more on section five? Yeah, I like what you said there, Heidi, about still needing the robust process and you need all your deliverables. And this is really just about what you're going to put in your submission. But I think one of the most interesting things about the table in there is that it is really short and sweet. We already have a human factor summary report outlined in the 2016 guidance. It's already a scoped process where you do your risk evaluation of your device and you decide how much work, human factors work that you actually need to do. And the manufacturer is responsible for making that determination by following the process and making sure that those deliverables exist. One of the sh surprising things I find about this guidance is how actually the core of it is really summarized in this table one in section five, where if you just take the human factor summary report and you do the risk category, describe your risk categories, you could just do the check boxes and say, just submit these things out of your human factor summary report. Would simplify the guidance. You could just still have 2016 as your main go-to document and a nice handy little table for your regulatory folks to say, hey, we know our device is this risk level. We know that we did this scope of work and these are the deliverables that we have. And the FDA is saying just submit X, Y, and Z from the human factors summary report. And you could really go about it that way. Because I think in a lot of people's minds, including my own, is the human factor summary report is already a summary of all the work that you've done. You have other documents. Right. You have a use specification. You have a use error analysis. You have formative reports, most likely. Maybe not. I think what I'm saying is that the process is modular. You have to understand 2016 
takes into account the fact that human factors should be conducted by people who are experienced and knowledgeable in why we do human factors processes, how we evaluate human performance and how we design for human performance when interacting with the system and its environment. And so if you understand that, you can scope that process correctly. And really what you just need to be able to tell your regulatory folks is, okay, we've done all this work. This is why we've done it. We have all these deliverables. We now have this HFE summary and the FDA would like you to submit these sections of the summary report or they want you to submit the whole report. And I think the biggest difference between this and the prior guidance, which was the highest priority list of devices for HF submission, is that document was really short. I think it was one and a half pages. It just gave you a list of products that required a submission. And I think that's a good point to bring up and so critical to us that we keep reiterating the fact that these guidances are not written for somebody who doesn't understand this in the first place. It's written for us, human factors professionals, to just have more guidance. It's just taking a little bit of the ambiguity out of certain things. And I think what's valuable in here speaks to the fact that FDA also intends this to concurrently revise the human factors guidance by replacing Section 9 in the original guidance, documentation, and Appendix A for the HFE report of the guidance with cross-references to this Section 5, and by making any other revisions, obviously. But what it really is saying is, yeah, we gave you the full guidance, and we gave you an outline of what we want to see in a submission. And in that submission, we would like you to follow XYZ outline, which was Appendix A, still is Appendix A. Remember, this is a draft. We're not changing what we're doing until this is finalized. But what the FDA is saying is, here, hey, here's a little bit more guidance based on some of the comments we've gotten. And what they're saying is, if, and that brings us to this beautiful chart. I know where you're going with this, by the way, because I think I'm there as well. (laughs) Which brings us to chart figure one on page seven, where they say, look, here's the deal. Is it a new device? Is it a modification to an existing device? Yes, no. All right, move on. Is there a change to any of the following? X, Y, Z. User interface, intended device uses, intended use environments, training or labeling. Yes or no. Then go on, move to decision point C. Based on the use-related risk analysis, are there any critical tasks? And for modified devices, are there any new critical tasks? And here's something interesting. It's a little bit hidden in the guidance, but in this chart, it says modified devices only, new critical tasks introduced or are critical tasks impacted. When they say impacted, they also mean whether you eliminate it, whether you change the number of critical tasks, whether you change the sequence of tasks. It is not purely directed at Do you just have no critical tasks or are the ones impacted and have XYZ changed? It actually also means, have you changed the sequence, eliminated anything? It could be as simple as you had four before, now you have three, and now number three is on number two, and number two is parallel to number three. From the outside looking in, it would look as if there are no new critical tasks, but when you really evaluate it, it does impact them. And this was a very critical point for me in the guidance. I don't know if you feel the same way, Janet, but this is where I went, 
And this is why it is not a replacement. It is not telling you how to do it because this exact point makes you remember that you can only get to this decision point C if you've done the activity of a use-related risk analysis or comparative task analysis or a known use problem analysis. You can't get there by just going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You have to do the activity to get to that decision point. And that is what I think is honestly a little weak in this guidance because that chart makes it seem a little different. Yeah, Heidi. And I think one of the things to clarify in what we're talking about is that earlier I was referencing table one, which is the list of information from the HFE summary report that you should submit. Whereas figure one, which you were just talking about, is the decision tree, which seems to be more of a decision tree, not about your human factors submission category, although that's how it's laid out. But it seems to imply this is how you should also do your work. Exactly. That if you're category one, you can stop. But that's not necessarily true. You may still have formative studies and validation that you need to do to complete your process to make sure that you feel confident that your device is safe and effective. I use the podcast title. In in the real world, you want that thing to be safe and effective. So you're not just always going to stop. And I think you and I aligned on this really early that the concern between the figure one when paired with table one implies that to some people who are not familiar with the process, that you may just be able to not even do these things. And that's not necessarily true or true at all, depending on what situation and device you have. I think it's great. I, we need clearer guidance. I think we need to help our quality and regulatory folks and even our HFE peers understand what submission processes look like and how the FDA operates with their submission processes so they can make good decisions about what should go out for approval or certification. And so I think this guidance will be very useful with some modifications. And I think it just needs to be really clear that this is not telling you how to do your work, but I do worry having seen how things have gone in the past and misinterpretations even of the existing guidance, that you can stop your work at certain points or that you don't need to be doing certain things. Or in some cases where people decide they don't need human factors at all, even when they are modifying user interfaces, for example, it does happen. It's unfortunate and it does happen. And depending on your risk category, you may or may not be successful depending on where that goes. And we want our manufacturers to be successful. We want them to be able to put their products on the market and have their patients, their healthcare providers, or whoever their users are, have a good experience with it. And so I think it's valuable that this guidance be very clear. And let's remind ourselves for a second, what this table is actually really telling you is, hey, in your submission, the parts we want to see the most highlighted is If you fall into category one, we want to have a real tight conclusion and high-level summary of what you did and why you came to this conclusion. Category two, we want to see that and we want to see a description of everything because X, Y, Z. Category three, we just want to see the full report, right? Now, what this is just saying is those are the parts we want to see in the submission documented and highlighted and emphasized. In order to get to a conclusion, high-level summary, you need to do the activity. 
you can't just get somewhere by just stating it. You have to do some kind of activity to get there. At a minimum, you had to do some kind of risk-related work. Known use problems. You had to do a use-related risk analysis. You did your UFMEA to show XYZ that it's same, that there's no risks or whatever. And let's be very clear if it's modifications, you had to do comparative task analysis. And at a minimum, you started with a task analysis because you had to have an idea of how it works and how you got there. And they gave, they gave us a nice little table example and said, at a minimum, we'd really like to see this information. And this is where I love to say this. The FDA loves tables. As a tip, as a friendly reminder, just make your life easy and put it in a table. Stop writing it in long word documents. Just put it in a table. It's just the way they love it. And when you look at this, again, this chart, and then you continue reading, there are actually, in Section 5, where it speaks to these examples, right, there are actually real detailed call-outs that speak to the fact that you are still doing the process, right? So as we were just saying about comparative task analysis, right? On page 13, for example, in the section three, right above the table four, it actually speaks to description of device user interface when applicable. This section should include. And then on the bottom, it says for modified devices, consider providing information comparing the subject and existing devices, right? And again, in a, so how do you get that table? You have to do the comparative task analysis, right? So I think sometimes I feel like in this guidance, it's a little hidden what the premise of it is, but that was a big takeaway for me. And Janet, I know that you feel the same way. I do. Again, I agree with you 100%. I think a guidance like this, or even if this could be shortened and put into the original guidance as an appendix to keep it all together. Yes, my comments are probably coming at some point to the open comment period, but it it is really valuable to have this information, to understand that the process has to be followed, the details have to be adhered to, you really have to understand what you're doing, and that the documentation portion of it can be modified for submission only. You still have to retain, whether it's human factors or not, you must retain all of your deliverables in your design history file, whether or not you submit them for submission. So you do have to have evidence that process was done beyond your submission documents. And so one of the things that I would really like to see, and I think why we're talking about this guidance today is because we're fans of things that clarify guidance for people. We're fans of it. And we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And what I would really like to see is to just see this be shorter, more succinct, and more closely linked to the 2016 guidance in a way that helps people understand First, I have to scope my process. Then I have to do all my things. And then at the end, I can check something like a table or and some examples maybe of different product risk categories to understand where I am and know what I need to submit for my submission very easily. Because we do have a range of submissions. My experience in a couple of different medical areas has been sometimes it's as small as a paragraph in your overall regulatory submission for human factors. And sometimes I did two products that were on that highest priority list your whole human factor summary reports going in. And then sometimes they're asking for more after that. But let's also be clear. I love that you just brought that up, right? Because you said human factors engineering report and we had to do the full, the whole shebang. You always have to do the full shebang. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. But let's remind ourselves, this is always the fun part for me. If you did your document proper, your HFE report is just a copy-paste most of the time from the documents you already produced. Because yes. every document you produced already at the top of it should have a summary of what the document is and the activity that was conducted in. <laughs> I love when you do that. For the people who can't see, we're touching our noses. We're touching our noses. You got it. You're right on the nose. You got it. If you did your document and your activity right, you already have the summary, which then goes into your HFE report because your HFE report, guess what, is, as you said, a summary of a summary. So it's more of, hey, people, let's remind ourselves what we're doing here. And then here's a way for you to condense it in a sense that this is what we exactly want to see highlighted for XYZ situations. And before we wrap it up a little bit here today, I also wanted to point out two things that left an impression on me on this guidance. I actually enjoyed reading the definitions in this guidance because what really struck me is, and I texted Janet earlier already today about this, so many texts. When you look on page five, right, the definition of use error, use safety, and user interface, use-related risk, and use-related risk analysis. What really struck me, oh, let's also go back, page four, page four, sorry, people, hazard and harm and hazardous situation, right? When you do your UFMEA, the different columns you have in it, right? And the sequence of them and what they're supposed to be titled and what's supposed to be in them. And I get that in this guidance, they give us a minimum what should be in it. There's always this discussion of is harm the same as risk? Is hazard the same as hazard a situation? Is it hazard equal risk? Is it what is it? And honestly, I liked that it highlighted this a little bit and changed a little bit tiny wording of it because What you get out of these definitions, finally, is to understand that harm is the injury, right, or damage to the health of people or damage to property or environment. Hazard is the potential source of the harm. The hazardous situation is the circumstances in which people, property, or the environment are exposed to one or more hazards, right? And then when it goes to the use-related risk, it is the combined probability, occurrence, and severity of a harm for a given aspect of device use or for the overall use of a device. And so that kind of was like, all right, can we finally all agree to not have a hundred columns in your URA or in your UFMBA? I agree with you. Sometimes we have too many columns. I I have minimal columns in my use-risk analyses, just Mm -hmm. FYI. Of course you do. Yeah. And if you want to do a detailed podcast on probabilities of occurrences someday, I can totally wing that too. Oh, we're for sure doing that 100%. (laughs) So one thing before we close up today's session is we really wanted to have a casual conversation about this between human factors professionals who actually are going to use this and apply it. I really wanted to make sure that we all understand that this is not a how to do your human factors. This is actually, I love to frame it this way. This is actually an open conversation the FDA we are having together. 
Human Factors Professionals and FDA, they listened to our comments, our feedback, and they said, based on that, here's what we're going to give you so we can take a little bit of the ambiguity and the confusion out of what your submission should entail. They are very clearly saying, and this does not mean you get away with not doing the process. It just means, hey, we get it. It'll a little confusing maybe in the beginning, or maybe it's a little much, or maybe everything doesn't apply to you. So let's take the question, the confusion out of it, and here's what we think, and based on your comments and feedbacks, what we really would like to see. That's it. That's all this is. It's a supplement. Let's leave it at that. It's like your vitamin B pill in the morning. It gives the boost to the original guidance. It makes you be a little bit more well-informed about what your submission should look like, what it should entail. It does not replace anything. Yeah, it supersedes the list of devices, but it's not superseding the human factors engineering process. So I think that gives it a nice little wrap up. And and at this point, I think I should just thank you so much, Janet, for coming on and having this conversation with me. Always lovely to talk to you. (laughs) I think the audience gets it by now that we are friends. And yes, this is the life of a human factors professional. When you are friends with another human factors professional, most of your conversations center on human factors. Funnily, Mm -hmm. we don't tire of it. We still find it exciting, interesting. We just really want to help clarify this. We want it to be very clear that this is a great intent and it's a good start. And I think that if people who are knowledgeable and thoughtful come out and comment on this guidance, it'll get to a place and maybe positioned in a place that it is easy to use and that it's really helpful for everybody. Lovely, lovely end words. Thank you so much, Janet. I can't wait to have you back on as always. (laughs) Thank you everybody for listening. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation today on the new guidance. And I hope you had some insightful moments, maybe some learnings, maybe some disagreements. Hey, share it. We're open for feedback. Share it all in the comment section. Let us know what you think. And Janet, thank you again. And I hope you all have a nice day. Thanks, Heidi. This was fun. And now we will take a quick break and come back with Elisa's interviews from this year's annual HFES, Human Factors and Ergonomics International Healthcare Symposium in Orlando, Florida. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. This is Elise Hallett at the HFES Healthcare Conference. And I am joined today by Tara Cohen, who is an associate professor with Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and Dr. Joe Keebler, who is also an associate professor at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Welcome, you two. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Before diving into this conference, for the listeners of the podcast, if you wouldn't mind just speaking a little bit about your role and maybe just a little synopsis of how you got there. I guess we can start with Joe. Sure. So I've been helping out the conference the past seven or eight years. I actually got involved originally through the main HFBS Healthcare TG, where I uh, program chaired it. And so I started off as a track chair and then eventually it evolved into the chair position once totally stepped down. I mean, I keep active in healthcare research. I've always been volunteering for HFBS since I was a graduate student. I was president of our society. And so that's kind of how I got involved. And Tarek, I was a student at Every Riddle back when Joe was still there um, teaching. So we started having a collaborative relationship pretty much as soon as I left and went to Cedars and wanted to integrate team science into the work that we were doing at Cedar sinai So we've been connected for a while. And in 2019, I was asked to be a track chair for the healthcare symposium. So I guess I did a good enough job that Tony and Joe invited me to help co-chair. 
this year. So this is my first year co-chairing and it's been a lot of fun. That's fantastic. And as I understand it, co-chairing is not your only role. Like you both are also associate professors on top of it and conducting your own research. And I understand, Tara, that you actually have a talk that you're giving at the conference. Would you mind touching on that? Yeah, sure. Today I was actually on a panel about surgical ergonomics research. So that was a really fun panel. And then Tomorrow, I'm actually presenting on a really fun project where we've developed a robotic assistant surgery Olympics to help teams do engaging motivational team training to promote their technical and non-technical skills in robotic surgery, but in a way that's a little bit more fun than your traditional didactic team training lectures. So you say robotic Olympics. What does that entail? Sure. So we were in the heat of the pandemic when we were doing a grant-funded study where it involved needing to implement interventions to improve teamwork and communication and coordination in robotic-assisted surgery. And so we came up with this gamified training, which we're calling the Robotic-Assisted Surgery Olympics, where teams of circulating nurses and scrub techs actually had to come together, form teams, and then compete in different tasks that would promote teamwork and different technical skills to win prizes and in a very Olympic-style manner. There were different events and they got to learn those events and learn throughout their participation and have a good time learning skills that were relevant to robotic surgery. That's fantastic. So I have to ask, how competitive did the folks get? Oh, beyond competitive. We gave them team names. They were like shouting at each other in the hallways, behind the scenes. They were very competitive and we assigned them their team. So they did not get to pick, which I think was good for the science, but made it a little bit more challenging not being with your friends and um, really help them learn how to communicate, but it got juicy. (laughs) I can imagine. I love hearing about the team research. I come from the consulting world. So a lot of times we are there supporting one device and want to think about the different efforts at play when you bring in multiple players that are involved. And so I love conferences like this and being able to learn about the work that people are doing in that realm. But I know the research side isn't the only thing that you two are working on. So jumping back into the conference and your role as co-chairs, for those who are not able to attend this wonderful conference, like what do you say sets this conference apart from some of the other conferences, either in the general healthcare realm or the human factors realm? Start with Joe. So I think the first is our size. We're relatively small. Even though we've grown since Chicago, we're about 10% larger. Chicago was our last large face-to-face because New Orleans, we're still in the shadow of COVID and we just didn't have the attendance of previous conferences. So we were like on this upswing until 2019 and then we went virtual, which almost doubled our numbers because of the virtual component. Then we went back to -to face-to-face. Obviously, this is face-to-face. And so we're back to where we started in 2019, like we finally caught back up. So it's about 600 people, which is a small conference. And so it's really easy to meet people and interact with them over and over again. We have one giant lunch together. All the poster sessions is everyone together versus other conferences. It's full of so many people. It's hard to kind of maybe find someone again. It's just, there's so many sessions. Right now we have five parallel sessions. So you can easily go to multiple talks and sessions and not be lost in a sea of people. Um, So that would be the first one. The second uh, aspect that makes us different is that we're pretty much 50-50 human factors practitioners and medical providers, admin, et cetera. So half the audience is folks trying to learn more about HF and how to apply it. And the other half is the practitioners of HF doing the work and, and bringing that expertise. So 
that marriage of the two fields together, that's really unique. So we are kind of really cross-fertilizing here between the two fields. So my third point is almost everything is like where the rubber hits the road. It's very little like abstract work and much more like this is working in my hospital or this is how we're changing the system to be better and safer. And so everyone's presentations for the most part are like proof in the pudding that's being done in an actual real world setting versus being done in a laboratory. <laughs> I'd like to comment on that as well. I think one of the things that's so beautiful about this conference, as Joe was saying, is you have so many different professions coming to this conference. Like I've already talked about three different collaborative projects with different folks from different industries and different backgrounds and different institutions. And I think it provides so much opportunity for networking and connecting and building those relationships where other conferences that exist, but I don't think you have the level of access to different folks with different skill set and backgrounds that you do here. So it's a lot of fun to learn from other people, but also have the opportunity to work with them and connect with them. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely attest to both of those points as the attendee of the conference. Any plugs you want to make for the conference next year? Well, we're going to be in Chicago. And I think that's a good place because it's in the middle of the country. And so it's really easy for almost everyone to get to from both coasts. So I think it'll be exciting. Hopefully we'll grow in numbers a little bit. But again, we don't want to get too big. You know, I think Tony and I have talked about this quite a bit over the last six years. And, you know, under a thousand is a good number. We're small and intimate. You can meet people and meet lots of people. And that gets lost when it's larger. Um, last plug I'll make is to consider publishing in the Human Factors and Healthcare Journal. It's new. It's exciting. The nice thing about that journal is that it's research and applied sciences. It doesn't have to be strictly academic. You can publish some of the work that you're presenting on here and that we're seeing here that will get in the hands of the folks in healthcare that can use that information to actually make sustainable change in their own organizations. And I think that's a really unique component of the journal that you don't typically see. And I think that's the beauty of some of the work that, that we're doing. If you did work at this conference, please feel free to submit it to the healthcare journal. It's up for consideration or to the main human factors journal. And then also in early fall, probably September, we'll probably open calls for next year for submissions. So people should be keeping their eye out and be ready to submit your work for fall for the Chicago conference in New York. So. Well, thank you both so much for being part of this. And now we will take a quick break and come back with Elisa's interviews from this year's annual HFES Healthcare Symposium. Stay tuned. I am joined today by Farzan Sassandwar and Tony Andre. Welcome, you two. It's great to have you both. Um, before we jump into talking about aspects about this conference, aspects about human factors in healthcare, would you mind introducing yourselves a little bit, your role? what your job is outside of HFES, because you two, I know, are both very busy, like actually as human factors professionals. So I'll start with Tony. I am director of Interface Analysis Associates, which is a human factors consulting firm. And when I'm not running my company, I am an adjunct professor of human factors and ergonomics at San Jose State. Fantastic. Two hats. Also wear two hats. One is the associate professor in industrial systems engineering at Texas A&M University. And my second hat is in a hospital called Houston Methodist. I'm the division chief for health systems engineering there. Yeah, definitely a lot of hats. It sounds like both of you are, are juggling. But on top of that, not just that, you're also, as I understand, involved with this journal that's going to be coming out shortly. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about what that is, the intent, and even the origin of it. Well, it's already out. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Human factors in healthcare. We are the co-editors in chief. And the reason we're co is because we decided to have two sides or personalities to one journal focused on human factors and healthcare. One, and I'll let Farzan talk about it, that Farzan manages is the research side, like a traditional journal, but we wanted to do something different because I live in the practice world. I'm a practitioner. I work for medical device and pharma companies, and I do a lot of research, but it's not like hypothesis testing. We do device development. I wanted to have a home for all that great work that you've experienced represented at this conference this week. And so that's called the applied side. So I manage the applied side and Farzan manages the research side. And then the other unique lease for the human factors community element of the journal, it's open access. That means is when we publish an article, it goes online. The entire world could read it and download it. There's no subscription and no model where you only get it if you belong to some society and, and get their journal. It's just available for the world to experience. That's huge from the access perspective. Anything that you'd like to tack up? Yeah, the research side of it, even though it's a traditional research journal, just like human factors, there's some twists to it. First of all, we want it to be very external facing. So it's not just a human factors community. We really want to do human factors to external world and receive submissions in the medical domain in healthcare. So by having an open journal, I think it serves that purpose of reaching out to the beyond just the HAPS community. Plus, there's still a focus on practitioners. So emphasis is still on impact and takeaways for practitioners. I think that's fantastic because really that captures the essence of this conference that I think is so great and bringing the different human factors professionals together, both from the applied industry side and the research and the embedded hospital side, because I really think it's from those perspectives that we can really start solving those hard questions. Because of this event, because like you just said, if you're in the main hallway here of the event, you're standing next to a professor, an industry member, like someone from a medical device company, and a human factors practitioner is right behind you. We're all at this event together. It's just all intermixed. Born from this conference was that idea of one journal focused on human factors and healthcare. And then let's represent both the practitioner and the research side. So if folks are interested in finding this journal or submitting to this journal, what information can we give to them? If you go to the HFES site, hfes.org and publications, you can get to it. And then you can just Google human factors and healthcare journal. And then that'll probably bring you to the actual journal site with Elsevier with the publish. Excellent. I certainly am very excited to poke into this a little bit more, especially this open access part, I think is huge from the practitioner side. So thanks for giving a voice to folks who are struggling with these problems out in the real world and not knowing where to put their lessons learned and their solutions. So I think this is going to be very exciting. 
I'll give you one example of the difference to the traditional human factors journal. So we're a society that has about 4,500 members. And so while it's very prestigious to publish in human factors, it's mainly read by our members. We're a new human factors in healthcare journal. And we have some articles that already have 9,500 downloads because it's open to the whole world. So our authors could end up having something viewed or read by hundreds of thousands of people because there's nothing they have to, the readers have to subscribe to. So it's a different mindset, but it's like ultimately what every author wants is everyone to read what they've done. So I think it's really exciting. Yeah, research or papers in general can't have an impact unless they're read. And so the spirit of journal makes it possible. So I think it's going to help our scientific community. It's going to help everybody in this community to become more visible, more relatable. Yeah. And so that's one of the missions of the journal. Congratulations to you both for already receiving so many views and hope that we can continue to get the word out so that just increases and we can get that information out to the world. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. In addition to all the hats you're already wearing, are also involved in some upcoming events and other areas of human factors. Farzan, I understand that you're involved in the upcoming HFBS conference. Anything you want to plug or mention for that? Sure. I am so excited with the annual meeting. This is going to be one of our biggest events. I mean, Washington, D.C., we're going to have, this time we're going to have an emphasis on impact again and practitioners. So we identified practitioner papers or submissions, and we're going to use that throughout the program so it, it doesn't look like a purely academic program. All presentations now end with practitioner takeaway and practical obligations. There's going to be a new emphasis on UX and usability. We traditionally have this usability and UX day on Wednesday of the conference. We're reformatting it. It's going to be able to do interactive events, do panels, a lot of stuff going on. They have an ad hoc committee working on that right now. Plus, we're in Washington, D.C., such an exciting place. And that gives us an opportunity to hear from some of these federal agencies or allies to human factors, which you usually don't hear from. So we're working on that, talking to NSF, NIH, HRQ, VA, FDA, you name it. All those are going to be there. And they can have information sessions, panels. It's a really exciting year for networking opportunities. Excellent. So for those who are hearing about all the exciting stuff happening at this conference and are bummed that you miss it, don't miss that HFES general conference. It's going to be pretty exciting. And it sounds like with a lot of this refresh format, it's going to have a lot more practical takeaways. For anyone who wants to just get immersed in the field, because the entire field is represented. That's the go-to. That's in October. And anytime I set my students there, it's been life-changing. And they never anticipated that just going to a conference would be more than going to a conference. And it always ends up being life-altering. Oh, I can definitely attest to that because I was in those student shoes and started with a general HFES conference. And so I second what Tony just said. You go your life. This is my career. I can't believe how much fun I had, the people I met, 
the authors of my textbooks, how friendly they were, the students I met. It's, a, it's an amazing experience. Definitely looking forward to that. On the opportunity to see human factors in so many different areas, like they're all represented there. So it's a good way to test it out if you're not quite sure of which specialty you want to go into. And for students, if they're listening, there are new opportunities. We usually have the Student Career and Professional Development Day, plus the Student Career Day is, is such a nice event. We usually have 100 to 200 students attending. And that's all free. That's all intuitive and the registration. And we keep that registration very low. If you compare HSBS to other engineering conferences, similar size of societies, we haven't really increased the registration, kept it affordable. So students, if you're listening, definitely check it out. Cannot recommend it enough. Tony, before we wrap up, anything that you'd like to discuss in your the human factors world? Just that the healthcare human factors symposium we're all at right now enjoying Orlando, Florida, is going to take place next year in Chicago. And this year was amazing. Our highest attendance ever, bouncing back from COVID. But Chicago has always been our peak. It was our previous two records. So we're expecting a huge turnout. If this week was anything reflective of where we're going. It's going to be amazing in Chicago. I would just tell people if, if you're in it or want to be in healthcare human factors, you have to go to this event. This should be your home. Yeah, it's going to be a great event. I got to work on the opening keynote speaker. We had a great one this year. We did. So I'm taking suggestions for that. And if people want to learn about how to get involved in the event or how they might end up presenting or just about attending, they could just contact me. That's fantastic. I know I'm already counting the days until that conference. This has been a great year, and I think a lot of people are really excited to be back in person, seeing the people that they always see at this conference every year. So it's a great opportunity to go visit some pretty cool places. Razan and Tony, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great, like learning about more opportunities that are out there to really support human factors, professionals in the field, regardless of what exactly they're doing. So it's a pretty exciting time. All right, folks, that's it for today. Great discussion. Please do share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion. And please do support the show, of course, only if you like what you hear, or maybe if you don't like what you hear and you just want to throw us a pity bone. Leave us a five-star review, tell all your friends about us, and consider supporting the Human Factors Cast Network on Patreon. Links to all of our socials and our websites are in the description of this episode. Thank you again, Janet and Nick, for being on the show today. Much appreciated. You can find Nick at Human Factors Cast and Nick Rome on all socials. As for Janet, you can find her on LinkedIn under Janet Creaser. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Merzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX Research. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and effective.